Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. James wrote, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word for us this morning. May the Spirit give us ears to hear what God is saying to his church. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 and 30, we read about Elijah, as James speaks of him in chapter 5. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Beyond that were told, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And it was during that time that Elijah the Tishbite first appears as a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He first appears in the next chapter, coming before Ahab, presenting himself and saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So by the word of the Lord, the God of Israel... The prophet of God stands before the wicked king and tells him that there is going to be a drought, and a serious drought. It will not rain at all for three and a half years. Now the thing is, James gives us this divinely inspired commentary on the story that we find in 1 Kings, and he tells us that during this time, Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain. Just reflect on those words for a few minutes. Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Now, I know that probably all of us have read this before, or we have heard sermons on the book of James before. And inevitably, the emphasis when we come to this part of James is put on the point that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and then, as one commentator has written, his effectual prayer life is therefore a model for all the saints of God, that is, all of those who trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And this is absolutely true. 
Elijah was a man just like us, a human being, and his fervent, effectual prayer life is a model for the people of God in, in all generations. But this morning, I want you to notice not so much just who Elijah was, but what Elijah prayed for. Again, James 5, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And his prayer was answered, too. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. The earth here in the sense of the land, as we talked about on a few occasions when we are going through the book of Revelation. James is not saying that Elijah prayed for a drought on the whole planet. We, we can assume that it rained in Central America, and we could even assume that it probably rained in the southern kingdom of Judah. James is referring to a very specific incident in a very specific way. But notice it was Elijah, the prophet of God, who prayed fervently that it might not rain. In other words, before Elijah prayed for the drought to end, before he prayed for the trial, as it were, to be taken away, he actually prayed for the drought. There's a couple of things about this. We don't really have time to go into it fully today. But it brings up an interesting point about praying the very clear and expressed will of God. Elijah is doing that here. God came and said, go tell Ahab there's not going to be rain for three and a half years. And then Elijah goes and tells him. But Elijah also fervently prays, I believe, during that whole time that the rains would hold off. Daniel did it. He read in the book of the prophet Jeremiah how God was going to return after 70 years of captivity and bring his people back to the land. And then Daniel begins to fast and pray, asking God to do what God has already promised to do. And we do this every single time we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't pray that prayer because we think there's any possibility whatsoever that God's kingdom will not come. God's kingdom has come, and God's kingdom will continue to come until righteousness covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a done deal. God's kingdom came when the king showed up, King Jesus. But we continue to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, because it is good and right for us to pray the will of God. In fact, we pray for it because we know it is his will. And according to the Apostle John, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, never ever quote this verse or think of this verse apart from those three words or four words, according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. See, the thing about praying the expressed will of God is that when we pray for what God has already told us is his will, we can pray with absolute confidence. We can pray in faith. That's why Elijah could pray the prayer of faith 
as James designates it here in chapter 5. When he was asking for the drought that God already said was going to happen because God keeps his promises. He always has and he always will. So when Elijah prayed fervently that it would not rain, he was praying fervently for God's will to be done, and it was. But why would God decree the drought in the first place? That's an important question for us to ask in this context in James chapter 5. Why would God decree the drought in the first place? And why would Elijah get on board praying fervently that it would not rain? Now, there's a reason for this. In the same way that Job was not an accidental example that James just happened to kind of trip over, James uses Job in a very specific way for a very specific reason. When James chooses this particular event in the life of Elijah, he does so for a reason. If this passage was all about healing prayer, and that's all it was about, then in the middle of this story of Elijah, after he prays for the drought, and after the drought begins, and before he prays for the drought to go away, Elijah actually performs a healing miracle. The widow of Zarephath loses her son, and Elijah raises him from the dead. And you would assume that if James' purpose here was just to emphasize God's power to heal, that that's the one he would go to, but he doesn't. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he goes to this part where Elijah prays that it would not rain. And drought is not an action that we would typically ascribe to God today. Even though, as Reformed Christians, we confess that God upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. In spite of that, in spite of this being our confession in the Heidelberg Catechism, we would typically encounter drought as a trial that came from somewhere other than God's fatherly hand, and we would be quick to ask God to take it away and just send the blessing of rain. And by the way, I'm not singling out drought here um, because we've so recently experienced a drought here on the Canadian prairies. I'm singling out drought because James does in his text but we look at so many of the trials that come our way in this life in that same way. The Heidelberg Catechism states, and rightly so, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, riches and poverty, even health and sickness, all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand. So the question is why? Why would God's fatherly hand send drought, barren years, sickness, and poverty? Why not just rain, fruitful years, health, and riches? Wouldn't people be more inclined to praise him for the latter rather than the former? And the answer to that question is no, we would not. We would just take it for granted 
and we would assume that we deserve it, and we would forget that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. So no, we would not be quicker to praise God if everything was just rainbows and roundabouts. But go back to where we started in James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Why would God send um, drought, barren years, sickness, and poverty? Well, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When God sends you trials of various kinds, count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's why. Because God is at work through these trials, through these struggles that we endure to make us into the people that he wants us to be and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is God's plan for his people. Remember that wonderful plan? that God has for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, that's it. God has this plan for your life that you are going to go through and you are going to fall into, literally, trials of various kinds. And when you fall into those trials, you can be assured that God is with you and that God is at work accomplishing his purpose not only in your life, but in the life of the people around you as well. Peter wrote, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons why God might send trials, rain, or, or drought, I mean, and poverty and sickness and all of these things is because this is a tool that he's using to accomplish his purpose in our life. We have to get away from this idea that a trial is something that's been handed to us from outside, maybe from Satan, and God's job is to just take that thing away as quickly as possible so that we can enjoy our lives in this world. That's not how it works. God sends the trials, and he gives more grace so that through the trials we can grow in our knowledge of him and in our walk in his Holy Spirit. Sometimes when I'm preparing sermons, I kind of give myself these little section titles to help keep focused on kind of what I want to talk about during the next section of the sermon. I gave this one the title, The Hard Sayings of James, um, sort of echoing something that um, is talked about in other places, the hard sayings of Jesus, all those things that Jesus said that are so difficult for us to interpret and understand. When Jesus says, if anyone is to come after me, he must hate his father, mother, brother, and sister, things like that, the hard sayings of Jesus. Well, here we have possibly the hardest sayings of James. I also thought about calling this section, does this really need to be said? And it does. It really does. I wish it didn't, but it does. Because James, having said there is 
a kind of trial, a kind of struggle that comes to us just because God is at work in our lives to create steadfastness and to let that steadfastness bring us into a Christ-like way of living. James here at the end of the letter implies another possibility as well. We read about both in our text last Sunday, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So count it all joy. Be patient. Establish your heart. Recognize that the trials that you are going through are temporary. And that God is at work in those trials to accomplish his purpose. So not every trial, whatever form that trial may be, is some sort of judgment from the Lord. But verse 9 of James 5, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So there are those times when God is using trials and struggles and even sickness and other things to not only accomplish the purpose of Christ-likeness in our lives, but to help us see that there is something in our life that we need to deal with, that we need to deal with before the Lord. So remember where we started this morning. James' second example, not Job as we looked at last week, but Elijah, Ahab, The son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a high bar, by the way. Um, For Ahab to get over that bar and to provoke the Lord more than all the kings who came before him. We're talking about more than casual wickedness here. And so Elijah the Tishbite comes onto the scene during a time when Israel is being led astray by a very wicked monarchy. You've heard me talk about some of these things in the past um, when it says that Ahab erected an Asherah pole. That's an idolatrous kind of worship that's associated with both male and female shrine prostitution. When he talks about worshiping the Baals, Um, and there are other things that come into the story of Ahab, we're talking about the kind of worship that involved offering infant children as human sacrifices in the fire to placate these pagan gods. Israel is being led astray by that kind of king and queen. The people of God were wandering away from the truth. Think about verse 19 in this context. We'll talk about it in just a minute. And Elijah comes onto the scene and he takes God's side. He takes the side of truth, determined to bring the people of Israel back, even if bringing them back to the Lord involves significant suffering. And three and a half years of drought would involve significant suffering. But that's what Elijah prayed fervently for. He prayed fervently that it would not rain for those three and a half years because he knew it was going to take something serious to make the people wake up and turn back to the Lord, their God. 
This was wisdom on the part of Elijah, because as James would write many centuries later, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, which is what the people of Israel were doing in Elijah's day, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save Sotsai, Sotso, his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So Elijah prayed that it would not rain. He prayed for drought. He prayed for God to intervene in the history of his land in judgment, not out of some sort of vindictiveness he wanted to see people suffer, but out of a real desire to see them turn back to the Lord, to come back from their wandering. He wanted them to be saved. And the rest of the story is that, of course, they were. Three and a half years of drought and famine, people starving, all of the hardship that would go with that. And then Elijah is told, go present yourself to Ahab again. And he does. And he gathers the people together on the slopes of Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal build an altar. And they call all through the day on their God to send fire on that altar to consume the sacrifice. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, about the time of the oblation, three o'clock in the afternoon, when the sun is high and it is hot, in this land where no rain has fallen for well over three years, Elijah builds an altar out of 12 simple stones and he digs a trench around it. And he says, pour some water on this. And they pour water on it three times until that precious water is running around that altar and the people who have had so little to drink are watching this waste. And then Elijah calls on God. And he says, Lord, this was the point of all of this. Prove yourself now. And God sends fire that consumes the sacrifice, it consumes the stones, it consumes the water, it consumes everything. And the people who have been so quick to worship the Baals and the Asherahs and all of the other pagan gods begin to chant, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They turn back to the God of Israel. And it's only after they repent that he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And that's the point. This is why God decreed the drought and this is why Elijah prayed that the drought would carry on as long as it needed to carry on so that the people would get the point and would turn to the Lord their God. After three and a half years of offering up sacrifices to Baal, which was a fertility god, praying that Baal would send rain and Baal would bless the crops and Baal would provide for all that they need, they finally recognized Baal is not going to answer our prayers. There's only one God in heaven, the Lord God, and he will. And so they turn to him and find deliverance and salvation in him alone. That's why. That's why Elijah prayed for drought. That's why he prayed for judgment. That's why he prayed that the Lord would act and also so that we could learn that the prayer of a righteous person has great power 
as it is working. And that's where James takes this. We closed last Lord's Day with the three questions and the three imperatives of James 5, verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him turn to God. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. If you're suffering, turn to God. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If you're suffering, turn to God. If you're cheerful, turn to God. If you're cheerful, recognize that this is not your right. This is not something that God owes you for simply having been born into this world. If you are cheerful, if you are receiving good things and blessings from the Lord, then sing praise to God. That's where they come from. And you can only depend on them as long as he lets you have them. But what if we find ourselves without strength? And I want to emphasize this again. I know I did last Sunday, but I want to do it again. The word translated sick in James 5.14, is anyone among you sick, is the Greek asthenai. Stenai being strength and a being the prefix that negates it. So it literally means without strength. Is anyone among you without strength? What are we to do if we find ourselves without the strength, physical, spiritual, or emotional, to live steadfastly, to pray to God in our suffering and to praise him in our cheerfulness? What do we do if we are asthenai? Well, let him call for the elders of the church. And this passage needs to be exegeted and understood in a very close way. Because in our day, so many people have just taken this and gone off in all kinds of weird directions with it and ignored what it actually says. Is anyone sick? Is anyone asthenai without strength? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let the one who recognizes that he is without strength, whatever form that weakness may take, reach out and call for the appointed leadership of the church. The elders is a technical term used in this passage and several others of people who were appointed as leaders over the church, the local church of Jesus Christ. Let them reach out for the appointed leadership of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Am I saying that it's wrong to just pray for sick people? Absolutely not. If you are sick and you ask your friend, your neighbor, your, your Bible study partner to pray for you, that is a good thing. We are to intercede for each other all the time with various kinds of intercession and supplication. The Bible clearly teaches that. That is not what James is teaching here. James is teaching a very specific kind of reaching out to the leaders of the church and having the leaders pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. And James' next words, together with his declaration in verse 19 and 20, which we already saw, provide us with the key to understanding this. And the prayer of faith will save sozai from the Greek root sozo, the prayer of faith will save the one who is weak, fatigued, ill. Okay, so 
be careful with this because the NIV unfortunately decided to translate this, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That's not what James says. If he wanted to say that, there's some very clear Greek words that he could have used when he wrote this. So that's not what he says, and I have no idea what motivated the translators of the NIV to use those terms. But this is a fairly literal translation, aside from sick, which is kamnanta, which is also weary or weak, fatigued, possibly ill. It's only used this one time in all of the New Testament. The prayer of faith will save sozo, as in you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save sozo, his people from their sins. That's the context that James is bringing into this. The prayer of faith will save the one who is weary, fatigued, or ill, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, if, that's a possibility, he will be forgiven. Now, the idea of raise him up, very same expression that we find in a very familiar passage from Ephesians chapter 2. You know that one that says, it is by grace you have been saved. For God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, raised us up with Christ Jesus, same term that James is using. So instead of talking about terms that would make clear sense in the context of merely physical illness, James is going to the spiritual stuff. And he's saying there's a kind of weakness, asteno, there's a kind of weakness that, that comes from this spiritual sort of wandering away from God. And if we recognize that in ourselves, we need to take action. We need to call for the elders of the church. They need to come. They need to pray. They need to anoint us with oil, to give us that visible symbol of it is the Holy Spirit who is our strength and our hope not anything else in this world. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And of course he will, because he just turned to the Lord his God. He just turned to the Lord who once promised, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And again in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, we have this tendency, and it's hard to assign blame. This has been so prevalent in certain quarters of evangelicalism, so-called these days. We have this tendency to make this passage in James all about physical healing from physical illness, as if that would be the real miracle. I don't want to make light of somebody's lived experience, but I was in a church far from here a while back, and the pastor was talking about asking the elders of the church to come and pray over him, anointing him with oil, because he had a toe fungus. And lo and behold, the toe fungus went away after prayer and the anointing with oil. I don't think James is dealing with that kind of thing. I don't think it's wrong to ask God to heal your toe fungus. You know, it seems reasonable. 
But that's not what he's talking about. As if being healed from a toe fungus was the real miracle. There was that occasion, actually, when some men worked very, very hard to bring a paralyzed friend to Jesus. Remember, they dug through the roof of the house where Jesus was, and they lowered their friend down. And when Jesus looked at that young man, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because that was the most important part. We looked at that when we studied through the book of Luke. That man could have gone away from there leaping and skipping and jumping, but not forgiven for his sin. And what difference would it have made? Why are we so quick to pray for physical healing for things and to overlook that really that's nothing. Yes, eventually, in that story, Jesus said, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. But according to Jesus' own word on that occasion, that was the easy part. The one who did in the beginning, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world and all things therein for himself within the space of six days, and all very good, as the Westminster Catechism says. The one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. How hard is it for him to heal a physical illness? That's just the bare exercise of divine power. He can heal any physical illness with a word. But to save someone, to save them from their sin to forgive them as an act of free grace, to raise them up and seat them with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that cost the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Think about that. Elijah healed, he actually raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. That's just the power of God. That seems to be kind of next to nothing for the one who could say, let there be light, and there was light. But to save his people, to make us his own, his son, Jesus Christ, had to die. And that, the salvation of our souls and the forgiveness of our sins, that's the true miracle purchased for us by the finished work of Christ on the cross and applied by the Holy Spirit to all of those who turn to him in faith. That's a miracle. I've seen people be healed of things. It was remarkable. There are stories that I could tell. But the greatest miracle that I have ever seen is when someone who is caught in sin turns to God through faith in Jesus Christ and finds true forgiveness and grace. Some have experienced the healing of their body. But some years ago, I was acquainted with a woman who at the time was dying of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And this woman was exposed to some teaching on this passage from James in a Bible study setting, and she came to the conclusion that God was going to heal her body through prayer and the anointing with oil. I remember how she talked about it as she was waiting for the elders to come. 
how absolutely fervently convinced she was that after that happened, she was going to stand up and she was going to walk away from her wheelchair. And she had invited the elders to come and pray over her, anointing her with oil. She had invited every Christian she knew to join with them in prayer at that time from home, just praying for God's healing power to be unleashed on her. I also remember that the next time we saw her, she was still in her wheelchair. They rolled her in. The atmosphere was pretty subdued, but she asked if she could speak about the experience that she had had. And when she spoke from her chair, she told us that in spite of what we could see with our eyes, in spite of the fact that she was still sitting there in that chair, she had been truly healed. Because for the first time since her diagnosis, she had complete peace with God about the outcome of that diagnosis. And she was persuaded that whatever the Lord wanted to do in her, through her, for her, that was what was best. She was confident that whatever the future held, she could have good confidence in her faithful God and Father that nothing, not life or death or ALS, nothing could ever separate her from his love for her in Christ Jesus. Now, sadly, I heard people at the time argue, and I mean sadly, that perhaps her faith wasn't up to the task. Maybe she wasn't healed because she just didn't believe hard enough. Or maybe it was the fault of the people who were praying. Maybe our faith wasn't strong enough, and that's why she wasn't healed. Maybe her words, her, her talk of how convinced she was that she was going to get up out of that chair and walk away were just some kind of cover for the fact that prayer and anointing you know, really doesn't work most of the time. I disagree, because while I don't remember the exact time frame, it wasn't very long after we heard her give that testimony when she did leave her wheelchair behind forever. Her Savior, having prepared a place for her, came and received her to himself that where he is, there she might also be. And in taking her to himself, he gave her the truest and the best healing that anyone could ever experience. My first church, there was an elderly woman whose legs didn't work very well. She wasn't very mobile, and I used to go see her. And I would walk through the door, and I would kind of holler at her. She'd be in her chair in the living room, how are you doing? And one of the last times I ever saw her, she said, oh, my legs aren't so good, but I've got a new pair on order. We moved away not long after that to a different church in Minnesota, and it wasn't long after we left that I got the little envelope with the card from her funeral service. And I remember opening that up and seeing her smiling face, the picture on the cover of that folder, and thinking she got her new legs. That's all. She got the legs that she had on order. She got the best and the truest healing that any human being can ever have. To be changed from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible, that's the miracle. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Truly healed. Healed from bondage to sin and death because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May we pray. Father, again, we ask, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying through your Word this morning. And to go out and to be doers of that Word as we seek to glorify you in all things. And Father, to be steadfast in our trials, knowing that through our trials, you are making us more and more from day to day, like Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.